0: wanted to stay a little bit in our uh, series, but I, I wanted to kind of deviate a little bit to share some things in my heart so if you have a bible let 's go into the scriptures let 's go to Matthew chapter six and uh, and we 're going to continue in the lord 's prayer but i want to I want to take it maybe a slightly different direction than uh, what would be expected Matthew chapter six if you remember uh, we 've been going kind of phrase by phrase through this prayer and and The reason we're doing it is we believe that there are parts of the Bible that are so familiar, they actually lose their punch. You know, they they just become, this young lady needs a a Bible right here. Look at that. You got a, in the front row even, that is awesome. Um, And and it's the very familiarity of of passages like John 3.16 or Psalm 23 or like the Lord's Prayer. The very familiarity of those things actually robs them of uh, how significant they are. And so we felt like the Lord's Prayer is one of those things. The Lord's Prayer is not a prayer you pray as penance. That is so not it. The Lord's Prayer is not something you pray because you can't think of anything else to pray. The Lord's Prayer at its core is the declaration of your allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth and his purposes in the world. That literally when we pray this, we're praying it Uh, as people who hunger and thirst to be a part of what God is doing. I mean, think about these words, Matthew 6 verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we've looked at the phrase our father and we've talked about what it means to pray to our father in the heavens and what it means to hallow or to keep his name separate and distinct. This morning we wanna look at the phrase your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the first thing to note is your kingdom come is saying the same thing as your will be done. That's saying the same thing twice. We're not very familiar with kings and kingdoms in our world. And so when Jesus Starts talking about, hey, repent because the kingdom of God is right near you. It's at hand. Remember, this was his core message. And then he starts talking about, God, let's pray that your kingdom comes in all of its fulfillment. We're not really sure what a kingdom is. According to this text, the kingdom is the place where God's will is done. So whether that's in a heart, whether that's in a realm, whether that's in a dimension of reality, that's God's kingdom. It's the domain over which God is king. And in one sense, he's king over everything. I mean, from the very beginning of the scriptures to the end, he is king over everything. But for whatever reason, he has allowed for a time in human history other wills to be done. See, there's a branch of Christian thinking that says that everything that happens on planet Earth is God's will. And I want, you to, let you, I want to let you know that that there, I don't have words strong enough for how much I disagree with that. God does not cause people to walk in the movie theaters and start shooting. God does not cause people to rape or abuse each other. And most importantly, why would Jesus have us pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven if God's will were already being done on the earth? It just doesn't make any sense. And so I need us to understand this prayer is a cry, for a, des- it's, it's a cry from a desperate heart. It's not the cry of somebody who's really at home in this world. It's not the cry of somebody who's really satisfied with how things are going, who's a big fan of the status quo. When you're praying your kingdom come, you're praying for God's cosmic divine cleanup operation to take place. You are saying fundamentally that yes, there's good in the world, and yes, there's joy in the world, but fundamentally something is wrong, and we are tired of the darkness in us and outside of us. We are tired of the evil done to us and the evil we do to others. We are tired of the way in which this world is held captive and groans underneath the weight of sin and death. See, when I was young and I accepted Jesus and people would tell me he's coming back, I always wanted him to wait. I wanted to wait to get married, you know, for reasons that should be obvious to adults. I wanted him to wait, you know, until I kind of lived life, right? And and the more agony I come into touch with, the more people who I've buried, the more friends who have diseases and diagnoses, the more people who struggle, and the more life just grinds away, I begin to understand the prayer, come quickly, Lord. I begin to understand the prayer, your kingdom come, may your will be done. I begin to yearn for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I yearn for the day when heaven and earth meet in Revelation 22, and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And all of a sudden, Jesus in his work doesn't feel like an intrusion anymore. It feels like the rescue that it's supposed to always have been. And so I want us to understand the cry, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, is the cry of desperate people. It's the cry of people who aren't fully at home in the way that this world works. It's the cry of people who hunger and thirst for him. And I want to take this idea of hunger and thirst, and I want to explore it a little bit. Go, if you would, to the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm chapter 34. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for God's kingdom to come? What does that mean? How come, how come we can just kind of pray that and go, yeah, it'd be cool, God, if you just did more stuff here and miss sort of the urgency and the desperation? Go, if you would, to the book of Psalms chapter 34. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, it's interesting there. The word taste literally means to try or to evaluate. So it's to see for yourself. It's not just to believe in an abstract way. It's to taste and see that the Lord is good. Notice, notice uh, flip the page over to Psalm 37. How, how David puts it here, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, which I always thought meant, cool, I like Jesus, and Jesus gives me what I want, and it's a little different than that. The word delight, uh, the word means literally uh, something luxurious or something exquisite, something rare, and I read about how some of the ancient rabbis in, in first century Judaism, when, when they would take little kids and they would begin to teach them about the Torah, the, the first five books of uh, the scriptures. They would put a bit of honey on their fingertips. And so that the kids, of course, would take the honey and, and place it on their tongue. And, and, and the rabbis would say something, I mean, they'd say it, I'm sure, much cooler than this. But they would say something like, may you see the very words of God to be as sweet as the honey on your fingers. And the idea was you, you didn't just learn the Bible because you had to, and that's what you did to be a good, like, Jewish person. The idea was they created a community where there was nothing more pleasurable than walking with God. And, and I don't know about you, but walking with God, I don't use the word delight in walking with God. I don't use the word pleasure or enjoyment in walking with God. I use the word like, hey, thank you for my ticket and now let me do what I want, please. Right, I don't, there is this this hunger and thirst expressed in the scriptures. I mean, would you say to somebody, literally, I cannot think of any better way to live than living under the rulership of God Almighty. I mean, do we act, could we even be, to say something like that as people of God? I mean, is it even possible that we would use the word delight to describe what it is to have life with Jesus? I mean, it's fascinating that in the Old Testament, there was this expression of spirituality that had to do with tasting and delighting in God. It wasn't a burden, it wasn't far away, it wasn't because you had to, it was because you were personally compelled. There was nothing better in life than to learn the words of God and to do them. How far away are we from that? And Jesus, interestingly enough, uses similar imagery. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Flip back to Matthew, if you would, Matthew chapter 13. These passages just always convict me because they don't describe how I look at God's kingdom in the world. Verse 44 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like what? Treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now, I mean, I don't know how you came to Jesus, but here's one of the pictures Jesus gives of what it's like to come into his kingdom and to want his kingdom. Back then, you didn't have safety deposit boxes, you didn't have banks, and so you would bury your treasure, sometimes under your house, sometimes in the thatch of your roof. Oftentimes, you'd hide it somewhere kind of away from your house where you were the only one who knew where it was, and because the mortality rate was so high, very often people would die without revealing to anybody else where their treasure was. And so Jesus just tells a very common story about somebody working in a field who comes across treasure and sees that it's so worth, of such surpassing worth, they, with great joy, sell everything else they have to buy the field to get the treasure. Does that characterize your walk with God? That literally, with great joy, I say no to this, 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 I say no to this. this. So that I can have that. Does that describe what the people of God are like? Or are we people that go, well, God, I'll follow you, but please don't send me to China. God, I'll follow you, but please don't call me to be celibate. Please don't call me to be generous. Please don't call me to sacrifice. Right? How much of, how much of our spirituality is based on pre-negotiating with God what he can and can't invite us into? And how much of the pictures that Jesus paints of his kingdom and the scriptures paint of life with God are about people coming to the conclusion that there is nothing better. See, I mean, I I don't wonder why the American church is so ineffective. It's because we're convinced there's treasure elsewhere. And whether that's treasure's money, whether that's treasure's reputation, whether that's treasure's success, we're convinced treasure's elsewhere. We've lost any sense of delight, of tasting and seeing that he is good. I mean, notice he continues, he tells a, a similar story, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he finds one of great value, what does he do? He went away and sold everything he had so he could have it. Evidently, when you get a really clear picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to, the appropriate response isn't, okay, cool. It's, this is of such surpassing worth, I would get rid of everything else just to have it. And so Jesus just tells these stories, and, and, and you realize, right, that he, like, part of the problem in reading the Bible is it becomes Bible stories, not real life, and so do you understand if Jesus were here, he'd use different stories and images, because all Jesus would do is he'd look at real life and go, yeah, that's just like the kingdom. So Mondo, fire up the YouTube. To what should we compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like opening a present on Christmas morning and having it be the thing you want most in the world. That is what his kingdom is like. Right And where is that in the American church? Where is the sense of delight and celebration? Where is the sense of just unhinged gladness because of how great Jesus is? I am so sick of the religious propriety and the religious apathy that sits in our hearts and prevents us, whether we're complicit in it or not, from giving Jesus the due weight He deserves. Every now and again, the people of God should be a little ridiculous in their celebration. Every now and again, His words should be sweet like honey on your fingers. Every now and again, it would be nice that with great joy we live a certain kind of way because we believe it's the best way to live. What has happened to us is that we have lost our first love. And so instead of Jesus, we have church. And instead of Jesus, we have Christianity. And instead of Jesus, we have doctrine and dogma and religion. And all of those things are fine and have their place, but they aren't the risen Jesus. And so every now and again, brothers and sisters, we have to be reminded that the reward of following Jesus is Jesus. It's not heaven. It's not forgiveness. It's not riches or health or wealth. It's Jesus. He's the treasure. End of story. And if you're like me, the reason I need to hear that is because I go through life treasuring everything else. Right? And then I wonder, well, how come you seem so far away? How come I seem so ineffectual? How come? And I read passages about tasting and delighting and treasuring. Ah. Yeah, I forgot. I'm settling for the counterfeits. Notice how Jesus speaks of life in his kingdom. Go if you would to Luke 16. Flip over a couple of passages to Luke 16. I just want to look at images of expectation, anticipation, and passion. About what it was like as Jesus walked the earth. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And what? Everyone is forcing their way in. Now what does that mean exactly? What do you mean everyone's forcing their way in? Go to the book of Mark. There's some examples of people forcing that I find so compelling Mark chapter 2 I love this Mark chapter 2 verse 3 Jesus is teaching in a house people have gathered in such numbers that no one can fit through the front door verse 3 some men came bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of his friends since the crowd could not get him to or sense they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that their friend rested upon so that Jesus could heal him. What does it mean to force your way into God's kingdom? I mean, we could talk about the woman that fights through the crowd just to touch the hem of his robe. We could talk about the beggar by the side of the road who called out, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. And all the religious folks told him to be quiet, but the scriptures say he shouted all the more. We could talk about the prostitutes and the tax collectors that interrupt dinner parties. We could talk about the people that did not let religious or social propriety get in the way of of the fact that there was something about this man and they just wanted to be close to him. They were forcing their way in. Have you ever heard of something called the running of the brides? It's like the running of the bulls, but with engaged women. Invading wedding dress stores. Who offer dresses at a deep discount? Mondo, fire up the YouTube. doesn't that look awesome all right Mondo to what should we compare the kingdom of God the kingdom of God is like a woman whose wedding day is fast approaching, who has every detail planned specifically and uniquely except for one, her dress. She cannot find the perfect dress. She cannot find the perfect fit or the perfect shade of white. And this woman searches and searches until she finds that it's on sale at a certain store. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who will elbow and crawl and scratch her way to that dress. Amen? See, these are the kinds of stories Jesus would have told. Seriously. So let me ask you. Does that in any way, shape, or form look like our relationship with God? The passion, the desire, the hunger, the thirst, the willingness to do anything to grab hold of him. The willingness to force your way in. What's happened to us that we've gotten so proper? What's happened to us that Christianity is now a substitute for real, living, genuine faith in the risen Jesus? If there's anything, brothers and sisters, I would want to leave you with, it is simply the prayer I would pray for myself. That the Lord Jesus would grow bigger and bigger in your life and in this place and that everything else would decrease. That, that we would hunger and thirst for the real thing and not settle for a substitute. And that this community would be marked by a passion for Jesus that transcends religious and social boundaries. That transcends the easy eventism of the American church where we just gather and then we scatter and we call it church that's not what Jesus died for there's something a bit bigger he had in mind and that your life and my life would begin to be characterized by the word delight and the word taste and the word treasure and the word joy and that we, we would come to believe he really is the treasure. And, and, and if you're like me, I, I kind of go, yeah, I know he is. But I also kind of have lots of other treasurings I'm working through. And, and the great news is that Jesus receives us too. Right? I think of the man in the book of Mark where he says, I believe. But help me overcome my unbelief. I think of the, of the disciples and how clueless they were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, denying their Lord. So we see his grace even then. But if there's anything I would want to say to you, it would be to cultivate a desire, a hunger, and a thirst for the real thing. I mean, I have... um, (laughs) I've tried some dieting in my day, and it's been very successful as you can tell, and besides exercising more and eating less, which, quite honestly, aren't options. Um, no, no, no. I exercise and eat differently. Um, I, I've learned one of the keys to like losing weight is to change what you hunger for in other words to to train like to have my taste buds trained from hungering for cold stone ice cream with reese's peanut butter cups french vanilla love it size <laughs> hypothetically <laughs> To fruit salad (laughs) so I did this thing once where this was a couple of years ago where I went on like a five-day cleanse sort of thing and I think that whole thing it's just a racket somewhere I mean it just has to be but if you would have said on day one do you want fruit salad I would have said no and then I didn't eat anything for five days except these shakes and then on the sixth day my wife made fruit salad and it was the best thing ever and you know what I learned? It is possible to hunger for better things. See, we think following Jesus means that somehow we have to shut off our desires. So I have a desire for uh, money or reputation or success or whatever. And we think that following Jesus means you shut off those desires. A- and has anyone succeeded in shutting off those desires? No. But the scriptures confront us with people. Who desire Jesus more than those things. In other words, the answer isn't to shut off desire. The answer is to cultivate a hunger and a thirst for something better. So that in joy, we'd leave everything behind. Mondo, fire up the C.S. Lewis, who always says everything better. And many of you know this quote. If we consider the unblushing promises and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Now, do you understand how revolutionary that line of thinking is? For most of us, we wage war against desire, and we think the goal is to get rid of desire altogether. And we think our desires are too strong. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily satisfied and pleased. And so, if there's anything I could leave with you, it would simply be the invitation, the call whatever it is you'd want to call it, to hunger for this Jesus and nothing else. And so when we pray, our Father in the heaven, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, understand what sits behind that prayer isn't contentment with the world, isn't, hey, we're getting along just fine, but it is the ruthless and relentless ambition of ours to align ourselves with the work of God in the world, to yearn for the day when he puts everything back to the way he intended. And the images of people who step into that prayer are people who force their way in, people who discover treasure with great joy. They sell everything else just to have it. The kingdom is like a kid opening a present on Christmas morning, or a bride to be fighting her way to the dress she's always wanted. The kingdom of heaven is like people who believe that Jesus is the treasure and would do anything, anything just to be close to him. So would you stand up, brothers and sisters? I want to pray over us. And, and I, I don't know. This is kind of, sort of a, a crazy thing to pray, but my, this is my prayer for you, and it's my prayer for me. May you not find rest until you rest in Christ. May you not find success until you understand your identity in Christ. May you not find satisfaction in anything other than Christ. May God I mean, do we really want to receive this? Any of you, Any of you twinging a little bit? Because it shows, right? Our treasures are really here too. But imagine if God were to answer those prayers so that we could be people who would pray, "My Father in the heavens." May your kingdom come and your will be done, not just around me, but in here too. So Lord Jesus, would you give us grace this morning? Would you increase in our estimation so that we might hunger and thirst for the right and the best things? God, we bring our petty desires before you and we just recognize they're so small. They feel so big to us, Lord, But in light of what you're up to, we just recognize how puny and thin and hollow they seem. And we pray for grace that we might be convinced that you are the treasure and that there's no better way to live, that we would taste and see that you are good and delight in you, O Lord.